Philippians chapter 3. Let's turn there. As we continue through Philippians, this series I've entitled The Mindset That Cannot Fail. And here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul last week, we saw he was talking about two examples of those who had mindsets that did not fail. We saw Timothy and we saw Epaphroditus. And then Paul turns a corner here in chapter 3. And, and I'll be honest with you, as we get going into this chapter and as we get around verse 8 and then work our way through the next few verses there, listen, some of the most difficult verses, I believe, in the Bible to understand, and yet I think there's rich truth there. I'll give you tonight what I believe it is talking about as many commentators or preachers probably that you could read or hear they'll probably differ on the details of that. But I do think there's one thrust through that whole passage, and so that's what I want to bring out tonight, the mindset that cannot fail. Now, Philippians 3 and verse 1, it says this, Finally, my brethren, talking to Christians, so keep that in mind, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, we need to... uh, to write the same things again. You know, some people, when they hear something more than once, they go, oh no, not this again. I I already learned this, okay? Well, number one, you really didn't already learn it because you need to, we all need to learn things over and over again. We need to hear things over and over again to make them stick. You think of flashcards. Do you remember flashcards when you were a little child? And having those flashcards, hopefully you use them, hopefully you were trained with those, and you learn your addition, subtraction, multiplication, division with flashcards, and you got to know them so well, it was almost, it was just automatic. You knew them, they were part of your being, all right? If you wouldn't have heard those things and practiced that over and over and over, it probably wouldn't have stuck with you, and you would be a prisoner of new math, all right? But instead... We know the importance of memory, okay? How else does one even memorize scripture except by hearing it over and over and over, reading it over and over and over? That's not a curse. That's a blessing. That's a tool that God has given us. When we hear things repeatedly, it cements those truths in our minds. Some of the greatest theologians of the past have said uh, the statement, repetition is theological mucilage, okay? Repetition, hearing spiritual truths over and over and over. Those are the things that stick, mucilage being a glue, all right? Now, verse two, Paul says, beware of dogs. Now, he's not talking about beware of dogs instead of cats, okay? This is a term having to do with people. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. There you go. Beware of the concision. This refers to the Jewish false teachers. This was a constant in the time of the Apostle Paul, and false teachers are a constant today. I've been just kind of a keeping a casual eye on some of the positive confession prosperity preachers through all of this. You know, at the beginning when it first struck, boy, they were ready to go and they, you know, they cursed it in the name of God and they were, they were telling it to go away in the name of Jesus and there it's all taken care of and you're going to see this gone in a week and all these kind of things. And of course, and so here they are, you know, with all these videos on YouTube about this. And then as time goes on, you see them get more and more tempered back. And now they're doing more devotional type things. You know, no longer trying to do what they can't do because it's not in their power. Listen, the prosperity gospel preachers are religious charlatans. 
They're not teaching the truth. They don't believe the truth. Oh, listen, I'm not saying some of what they say doesn't have some truth to it. It'd be really hard for somebody, everything that came out of their mouth to be wrong. But beware of them and don't follow them and don't get into that, okay? A lot of the emails that I get have to do with people who have been involved in false teaching, who have seen the truth and have now come out of false teaching or are coming out of false teaching. But so many people have been captured by false teaching. This refers to the false teachers of Paul's day, okay? And unfortunately, this is something that is seldom talked about in our churches, but it's an important part of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Bible is, is warning to us, warning, okay? Not just encouragement, but warning, and that is important. So dogs, okay, that's how Paul termed them. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in in the flesh. Now the, the dogs, the evil workers, the concision, the, the, uh, the false Jewish teachers, that is where their confidence was, is in their flesh, in their good works, in their performance. Paul says we shouldn't have any confidence in the flesh. He says we are the circumcision. What he's referring to? Well, circumcision, really Paul and all believers are in the true sense of the word, they are the true circumcision. Circumcision, I won't go into the details, but if you study it through, it was a mark of being set apart to God. And so those who are believers today are of the true circumcision, so to speak. We've been set apart to God. It's the same general concept, I should say, as sanctification. All right? When you get saved, you're set apart to the Lord. You're set apart to the Lord for his purpose. That's the idea here. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. Actually, in chapter one, it said in verse one, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That word saint is the same root word as the word sanctify or pure. And it means to be set apart, that set apart from that which is evil or, or from the world. And so all believers have been set apart to the Lord. And of course, Paul was a believer, so we're in this together. Now back to Philippians 3 and verse 4, it says this, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I the more. He says if anybody is going to look at their flesh and have confidence in it, not that he did, he didn't, but if, if anybody had the right to, it was him. And then he talks about his pedigree here. All right, look what he says circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, concerning the law, he was a Pharisee, one of the leaders in Israel. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, okay? Touching the righteousness which is in the law, or concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he says, I was blameless, okay? He was a very devout religious Jew who was very focused on the law. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, okay? He knew the law and he knew the details of the law. Now you see, he says he was blameless. Now blameless does not mean that he never sinned. What it means is that when he did sin, he dealt with it as a Jew would, bringing the appropriate sacrifices and had those sacrifice offered for that covering. 
He was a very dedicated Jewish Pharisee, though. He really had believed. Now catch this. Paul really, at one point in his life, believed that he was doing the will of God by persecuting believers in Jesus Christ, having them arrested and having them put to death and giving his approval to that. In the Jewish community, Paul was well-known and he was well-admired. Saul of Tarsus, very educated man. But something happened. He trusted Christ as his Savior. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is so much better than religion. You can have religion. You can be devout in your religion. But friend, let me say this. In contrast to that, when you truly trust in Jesus Christ and him alone as your savior, when you understand your lost condition, you put your faith in Christ instead, Jesus Christ becomes your savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you have something that no religion can duplicate or even compete with. There's just no comparison. Jesus, he said it himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Verse 7 again. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now, What does that mean, that I may win Christ? Paul was already a Christian. He was already a Christian, okay? I think what he's talking about, he's not talking about something he's going to get in the future. He's talking about this whole idea of when you come to faith in Christ. What does it mean that I may win Christ? Well, the word win means gain. Here's the truth of it. He gained Christ when he got saved, That's when he gained Christ. When you gain Christ, you win. Now, I'm sure the translators of the King James, well, I can't be sure, but I think instead of them putting gain in there, that I may gain Christ, I thought they saw, yeah, and when we gain Christ, what happens? You win. You win. When you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've won. You've won the greatest issue in all the world. You've won. You've conquered eternal death and hell, and now you have eternal life. In other words, Paul, he traded his religion of the lost for the living Savior, and he won when he did that. And then he explains, verse 9, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith and be found in him. Now, Paul was already saved, so he was already found in him, but he's talking about what happens when a person gets saved, okay? And he talked about what things were gained to me, those I counted lost. I count them but dung that I may gain Christ. And when he gained Christ, where was he found then? He was found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You notice there in verse 9, the importance of understanding that. It's not our own righteousness. This is where people get off. They think they can get to heaven by their good deeds, okay? 
Let's pretend just an example of this. This is you and me, and my wallet represent our sin. We're all sinners according to the Bible, and God says the penalty of sin is death if we were to pay for our own sin because the payment's required. If we were to pay for our own sin, we would have to die and spend forever separated from God. Rejected. Rejected by God under condemnation. Now, to get to heaven, you have to be sinless. None of us are. But what most people think is that by their own righteousness, by their own good deeds, whether it's reading the Bible, going to church, being baptized, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, being a good neighbor, being a good citizen, doing sacraments or ordinances, they think their own righteousness, okay, their own righteousness, doing righteous things on their own, that's what your own righteousness is, that that'll pay for sin. But death is the only payment for sin. See, there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, and that's why God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into the world, he went to the cross, he took our sin upon himself, and he made the payment so that we would not have to. He was buried and rose from the dead. And he says, if we will put our faith in him that he made that payment for us, he will give us that moment everlasting life. Do you see it in verse 9? And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. What do you need to go to heaven? The righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now this is what you have once you believe. Now I've used this before, but... Uh, If my pen was me, all right, and if my Bible was the Lord Jesus Christ, when I trust him as my Savior, the Bible says I am now in Christ. I don't have my own righteousness. I have the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see my sin. That's been taken care of. He sees the righteousness of Christ. If I'm as righteous as the Son, could I go to heaven? Well, absolutely. And that's what you get the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. So let's break this down as we go through this passage. The first thing we see is what we just covered in verse 9. Number one, Paul knew the Lord as a Savior. He knew the Lord as his Savior. This was his standing in Christ. This is how God saw him in eternity. Okay, He's a child of God. It was by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. So that's where Paul stood. But folks, this is where we want to go tonight with this, that mindset that cannot fail. God wants us to understand, not only is Jesus a savior, someone to get us to heaven, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. We, when we trust Christ, we enter into an eternal relationship with God himself, the God of the Bible, who the Bible says he loves us infinitely, always, 100%. God loves us, and we are his children. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to grow in that relationship. Paul got this, I believe, right off the bat. He was so captured by being saved by grace, being found in Christ, knowing he had the righteousness of God, knowing that he had won or gained Christ. What did he now want to do? He wanted to go on and he wanted to grow in that relationship that he had with the Lord. His standing was perfect. 
in light of eternity. But he didn't stop there. He wanted to move on. And that takes us to verse 10. It says, that I may know him, not just that I may be saved by him. No, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So first, we see that he knew the Lord as a savior, but secondly, he wanted to know the Lord through a daily walk in verse 10. Let me ask you something. If you're a believer, do you want to know the Lord? Friend, if this is not a passion for you, if a daily walk with the Lord, if you're saved and and that is not a passion for you, you have a spiritual problem. I'm not saying you're not saved. What I'm saying is something has gotten in the way and something else has captured your affections. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not the way God wants it because God has wonderful things in store for you with that daily walk with him. And Paul had such a hunger and a passion for this. He not only knew the Lord as a savior, he wanted to know him. He wanted to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So let's break these things down. I think that I may know him is the thought. And then coupled with that are these other things that are within that growing, knowing relationship with the Lord. He wanted to know the Lord through a daily walk. That was practical for daily living. And again, parts to this. Look at him here. He wanted to know the Lord's power in his life. Do you see that? The power of his resurrection. What is that? The same power, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead was the power God wanted Paul to know in his daily life. And Paul says, I want it. I want to know it. I want to realize it. I want to understand it. And how do you get that? This is through abiding in Christ and yielding to him in obedience. Okay, we stay close to the Lord. Uh, John 15, we abide with Christ. Stay close to him. If we sin, we confess it right away. We get back in fellowship with God and we walk with him and we live focused on him. Right now, it's easy to focus on a lot of other things. The Lord is saying this, hey, hey, I've got so much better for you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm ultimately in control of this, okay? Do we want to know the Lord? Paul wanted to know the Lord's power in his life. Secondly here, he wanted to know the fellowship that is found in the Lord's sufferings. Now that sounds weird. When we think of fellowship, we think of, you know, getting together and encouraging one another and laughing and having a great meal together and all these kind of things. But wait a minute. Here it's talking about fellowship in the Lord's sufferings in verse 10. What is that? Well, This is opening yourself up to difficult circumstances because you stand as a Christian. And this is how this comes about. Can I tell you, friend, most Christians in America today have never known real, serious persecution. Not all, but most Christians have never known it. That may be changing soon. We'll have a greater opportunity, if you will, to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You see, Jesus suffered when he was here. He suffered persecution. He suffered ridicule. Those who were faithful in the early church suffered persecution, suffered ridicule. Some of them suffered martyrdom. Many of them suffered martyrdom. 
I want you to hold your place here in Philippians 3. Turn with me over a couple passages I want you to see. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He wanted to know the fellowship that is found in the Lord's suffering. There is a, uh, can I put it this way to you? There is a side of the Christian life that is such a godly part of the Christian life, but it's the part of suffering. It's the part of persecution. It's the part of experiencing suffering and trusting in nothing but the grace of God to make it through those times. If you've never been in situations like that, friend, you have not entered into the fellowship of his sufferings. But there is a sweet communion. And that's what the word fellowship, by the way, means things in common, means communion. There's a sweet communion between the Lord and the believer when that believer is going through intense suffering, possibly persecution-type suffering, and they have no one to lean on but the Lord with all of their being. The Lord is always there. The Lord always comes through. The Lord is near. Second Timothy 3.12, it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I could show you verse after verse after verse where the Bible teaches this. Somebody else who knew about persecution and suffering was Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter with me, chapter 4, and in verse 13 it says this, but rejoice inasmuch, now, before I read on, 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering. That's what the letter is all about. That's the context of the whole letter. And so he's writing to Christians who are suffering. They're being persecuted under Rome. And he says in verse 13, But I rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Okay? Those who hate God, those who are wicked, when they think of God, they speak evil of him. But from our perspective, we want to glorify the Lord because he's so good and he always comes through. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And of course, he died a martyr's death. And I guess that was the ultimate entering in of the suffering for him. But of course, it didn't last very long, did it? Go back to Philippians, back to verse 10, 3.10. And again, it says, Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. All right? He wanted to be as much like Jesus as he could be. And if it meant that he had to die, he would. I think it also had the idea of being crucified with Christ and living that what we call a crucified life to where I consider myself as dead, okay? God wants us who are believers to consider ourselves dead to the old life, to not go back, to live not in the past, but in the present, not both, No, God wants us to live now and he wants us to live for him and consider the old us and the old testimony and the old way we were, lifestyle, consider that to be dead. Paul wanted to be as much like Jesus as he could be. 
verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, when you put all these verses together, it can be very confusing. Very confusing. What is he talking about? Verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. He was already in Christ. And then in verse 11, it says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. People read that and they say, well, you see, even Paul wasn't sure of his salvation. No, I don't think that's what he's getting at. He wasn't, he wasn't doubting his salvation because so many places he makes it clear that you can know for sure you have eternal life or eternally secure in Christ. You can't lose it no matter what. There's verse after verse after verse after verse telling us that in Paul's writings as well as John's. No, this, this has to mean more than that, and I think it does, which brings us to our third point. Paul had a desire to run the race successfully and be rewarded by the Lord at the rapture and at the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 11, it says, if by any means I might attain, okay, or arrive at that point, arrive at that point. Now, I don't think it's so much focusing on the destination of getting to heaven. It's focusing on the arriving to the point of fulfilling God's will for his life at the rapture and at the judgment seat of Christ. It isn't that Paul wondered whether he was saved. He knew he was. What he's talking about is having a victorious race in the Christian life. From the time he got saved, he wanted to make his life count for Christ. And when the rapture does occur, he looked to win the prize that will go to faithful believers who have faithfully lived their lives for Christ. And that's brought out in verse 12. He says, not as though I had already attained. By the way, that's the same concept as arrived. Either were already perfect or complete or mature. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend, I may grasp that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? When the Lord saved me, he had a purpose for my life. When the Lord saved me, he didn't save me just to keep me out of hell. He saved me to be my personal savior, to be my everyday savior, to have a daily walk with him, to have Christ so real in your life that that's really all that matters. In Paul's life, folks, I don't believe there was, there was room for all the junk and the weights and the, the distractions that we have today. He was so committed to running the race. And yes, it cost him in a sense of the things of the world, but he won so much more. Not only when he trusted Christ, but the way he lived his Christian life. But see, he understood. He only had one life to live. He only had so much time to invest. And he said, you know what? I'm gonna make this count. I want to experience real Christ-likeness. That's what I want. And when the rapture occurs, I think that's what he's getting at here in verse 11. Not as though I had already attained in verse 12 either, were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ. The Lord apprehended him, and Paul says, you know what? I want to apprehend now everything that God wants me to have. And how do we get that? It's through that walking with him every single day. See, the Lord saved him for a purpose. This speaks of the reward and the glory 
for godly believers. And we see that brought out in verses 13 and 14. It says in verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He says, I haven't arrived. I haven't reached the goal yet. Now, again, he wasn't working his way to heaven because he said in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But this goes along with what he was talking about in chapter two when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here he says in verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. What are those things? His past life, the different things that he's experienced, the mistakes, the problems, the sins that he had committed. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth, that has to do with apprehending something. Reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize. A prize is something you earn through competing, right? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. All right? I think the high calling of God, People, some people say, well, that's the rapture. I think it's not only the rapture. I think it's more than that. I think it's the, it's the well done, thou good and faithful servant reward. It's a trophy. It's the crowns, multiple crowns that the Lord talks about in the word of God. Here's the point, friend. Some more of the mindset that cannot fail. If our focus is on Christ, if our focus is on walking with him and getting to know him better and sharing him with the lost and being faithful in the way we live and not getting entangled with the things of this world, but be focused, zeroed in, laser focused on him and living for him and living a fruitful life until we see Jesus at the rapture. If that's where we are at, that's going to help us every day with our attitude to keep things in perspective, to keep priorities right, to not get so bummed out on things that are problems around us that we can't be effective for Christ. The challenge is there, yes, but the answer is clear, isn't it, in the book of Philippians. Hold your place here. Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul again talking about, and by the way, if you want to know more about the sufferings and the hardship, and the difficulties, and the challenges of Paul's life, I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is great. 2 Corinthians, though, it really gets into the nitty-gritty. It's very, very meaty, and there's a lot of talk in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about the things he suffered for Christ. Here's just a sample. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, what? Paul, you're talking about all the things you've been through and you call them light affliction? By the way, American Christian, think about that. See, there's a reason he called them light affliction. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. They're not going to last, the hardships. But the things which are not seen are eternal. The things of God are of far greater value. And this this affliction, the uh, challenges we go through and the persecution we go through, this is just a moment in light of eternity. There's so much better ahead. God is saying, just stay faithful. 
Stay faithful. Keep your eye on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. One of the last promise, well, the last promise to the mention here, it's to the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 is a lukewarm church. It's neither hot nor cold. Very materialistic, very independent spirited. Sounds like the exact church of today, the way the most of the body of Christ is today. And they had all kinds of problems. But the Lord tells them what their problems is. He rebukes them for that. And then he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He only does that to his children. Be zealous therefore and repent. Have a change of mind. Have a change in your thinking. That's what this word repent means. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him or dine with him and he with me. Now this is written to believers. This is not a salvation verse. See, this church was so carnal, so out of touch with Christ, it's like he was outside the church knocking on the door so he could come back in because they basically didn't have room for him. That's basically what it is. And he says, listen, I'm rebuking you. I'm chastening you. I want you to have a change of mind because I want to come back and I want to fellowship with you. I want things to be right between us. And then he makes this promise, and this is to the believer who will do what? Get straightened out. That's what he's talking about in this passage. To him that overcometh, conquers, prevails. It's a Greek word, nikeo. We, that's what's on the side of your Nike shoe, okay? And the word Nike means the overcomer, the one who conquers and prevails. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame, See, this is not a promise. This is not getting saved because Jesus never had to get saved. No, but there are things he had to overcome when he was here, didn't he? The sufferings that he went through. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Imagine that. Jesus said, you Christians, you overcome these problems. You live the life that I've called you to live. And of course, he's the one who determines reward. It's not up to us. The Lord does that. He judges the heart as well as the actions. But he says this. He says, you who overcome, you know what? I'm going to allow you to sit with me on my throne. What a privilege that would be to sit on the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. That's amazing. You might say, well, no one deserves to sit there except God. You're right. You're right. But he has this thing one of his attributes. It's called grace. And he is, what does grace mean? Undeserved kindness, unmerited favor, okay? And he's undeservedly kind and merciful to us. And so here we have this promise to this church who was living in a carnal way and the Lord wants them to get squared away. And he says, listen, I want to come back. I want to fellowship with you. I want to walk with you. And if you change, if you get going back on track, not get saved again, you don't get saved again. You only get saved once. But if you get back on track, you're going to have great reward. Isn't that a great thing to realize? It's a great thing to realize. And so what is Paul getting at in here in Philippians chapter three? Well, one, he talks about how in the world's eyes, he was very prestigious in his past. But when he met Jesus Christ and when he trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, he says, 
I consider everything I had basically as manure compared to what I have now in Jesus Christ. And you know what? I just want to know the Lord more and I want to serve the Lord more and I'm looking forward to the day to when I can be with him. That's what these verses have to do with. Now, friend, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ yourself as your personal Savior, I urge you right now, trust in him as your Savior. He's the only way you can go to heaven. He's the only payment for sin that you can receive in this life. When you trust in him, he forgives you of all your sin. The payment he made is put to your account. He gives you everlasting life. He gives you a home in heaven. Do you have to live a perfect life? No, you can't live a perfect life. None of us can. You don't go to heaven by the way you live. It has nothing to do with that. You go to heaven by what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Trust in him as your savior and you can know you're going to heaven. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.